Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey there, happy hour friends. We have a great conversation for you today with a Texas girl living in Colorado, working within immigration. Today's guest is Sarah Jackson. Like many of our happy hour guests, I first learned about Sarah from a book that came in the mail for me. The House That Love Built is the book I'm speaking of. It's a beautiful story of how Sarah's understanding of immigration justice as administered through higher walls and longer fences shifted after she met an immigrant a deported young father separated from his U.S. citizen family, and everything changed for her. Sarah began to know fractured families devastated by threats in their homeland and further trauma in U.S. detention. As Sarah opened her heart and her home to immigrants, she experienced transformation and an extraordinary community. Sarah worked through the ministry of Casa de Paz to bring hospitality and hope to others as she lives out what it means to love our neighbor. You guys, this story is really good. And Sarah shares great information to better help us all understand a bit more about the immigration circumstances in America. You guys, if you've been here for a while, you've heard us talk about our Patreon community. And I love that community so much because these women get the behind the scenes of the happy hour. Right now, that community is wrapping up our very first week of a book discussion on my new book, UBU. Well, the reason this is so exciting is because UBU, the book, hasn't even launched yet. But members of our Patreon community are getting to read it first and go through week-by-week book discussion with me. It has already been incredible to read the book together and talk about the book with these friends from all over the world. I'm really excited for you, yes, you listening right now to get your hands on this book, UBU. There's a little less than three weeks till it's released into the world, and that means there's still time for you to get all the pre-order goodies by pre-ordering today. Text UBU, all one word, no spaces, to 33777, and you're going to get all the details about how to order and redeem your pre-order goodies. And you guys, you're going to want to be there for that September 30th launch party because it's going to be amazing. Okay, friends, here's my conversation with Sarah. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you for having me. You're a Texan girl at heart, aren't you? I am. I was, well, I wasn't born in Texas, but I was raised in Texas. And we lived in Bastrop, Texas for the majority of my childhood. And I, you know, they say you can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the girl. And that is 100% accurate with me. I love it so much. Well, I'm a Texas girl, lived in Austin for 12 years and love it. Introduce yourself to my listeners before we get started. My name is Sarah. I grew up in Bastrop, Texas, which y'all already know about. Oh, I still say y'all. That's the I one like thing it. Thank that you. I'm still very proud of. Good. Um, I now live in Denver, Colorado, and I am part of a ministry called Casa de Paz, which means House of Peace. And we do our best to follow the words of Jesus when he says that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So we have a hospitality home set up for families who are separated by immigrant detention. And 
that's a little bit about me. All right. I love it. Let's dive into this whole subject of your home because I'm so intrigued with it and impressed even without knowing much. So you've already impressed me with that. But I want you to take me back and tell me the whole story about how, I mean, we don't have, you know, 15 days to talk about because I'm sure the story is long and there's a lot that goes into it. But tell me how this idea of this house actually even came about in your own personal life. It was a total accident. (laughs) So... I had, I moved to Colorado Springs when I was 15 years old from Texas. My dad got a job. And so our whole family moved out here. And after I graduated from high school, I had a couple random jobs here and there. I was a nanny. I worked at a couple different nonprofits. And then I, about 10 years ago, was working at a church. And one of my, I was the senior pastor and executive pastor's assistant. And so one of my responsibilities in the morning, I'd get to the office and I would actually open up the email for the senior pastor and the executive pastor. I'd read them and then I would respond to the emails for them so that when they got to the office, they may have only one or two emails that they had to actually read and respond to, which the older I get, the more I think that is a definition of heaven on earth, (laughs) (laughs) only going to your email and having two emails. I love it. Someone else takes care of all of it. Exactly. So one morning I get to the office, open up the laptop, look at all the emails. And there was a particular email in there from Catholic Charities. And what they were doing was putting a group of pastors from Colorado Springs together to go down to the Arizona-Mexico border to learn about immigration. And in addition to learning the history of immigration in the United States, also looking at it from a biblical perspective. As a community of faith leaders, how do we respond when immigrants come to the country that we live in? And I looked through the email. It didn't really pique my interest. It was just another invite kind of a thing. I looked at the pastor's schedules. It didn't work for either of them to go on the trip. So I was replying to Catholic Charities, telling them, thank you, but no thank you. And then at the very bottom of the email, some words popped out to me. And those words were, all expenses paid trip to Mexico. (laughs) And I had never been to that part of Mexico before. I love to travel. I thought, let me go instead. So Catholic Charities took the bait and they said, sure, come on down. So I went on that trip. And for the first time in my life, I was spending time with people who were really suffering in their day-to-day lives because of our immigration policies as a country. And that is when my whole world felt, or a whole part of this world, you know, it felt very disturbing to me. The stories that I was hearing, the lives being impacted by the border itself and by our immigration policies, there was something in my gut that was like, this is not okay. I don't know why it's not okay, but I just know this is not the right way to treat people. And when I came back from that trip, I had this moment where I knew my life was going to change. I didn't know how, and I didn't want it to change either. I was very, very, very happy in my perfect little life in Colorado Springs. And I knew if I followed that calling of, okay, something's going to change, that it would be drastically different, Mm. but I couldn't escape it. And a couple of years after that trip, I ended up moving to Denver. There's an immigrant detention center in this city and just sort of sat here and waited for 
further clarity in what I was supposed to do. Wow. It was a very interesting time wow. of my life. Okay, so I have questions. You go down to the border in Arizona. What city in Arizona did y'all go over to the border in? It was Douglas, Arizona, okay. which is right across uh, the border from Agua Prieta, Mexico. Okay, gotcha. So you go down on this trip for your free trip to Mexico, which makes me laugh so much, Sarah, that you're like, I'll go. Like, okay, <laughs> I'll pretend to care. What did you see there that made the trip more than just a free trip to Mexico? I saw complete strangers turn into my family. And let me explain what I mean by that. There was one particular evening in Mexico. So our group spent half the time in Mexico and then half the time on the U.S. side of the border. There was one evening on the Mexico side of the border where our group had dinner at a shelter for men who had just been deported from the United States to Mexico. And I sat next to a young father whose name is Augustine. And Augustine began telling me his story of being deported. He told me that he was brought to the United States as a young child. And when he was 16 years old, he asked his parents for his birth certificate so he could get a driver's license. And it was at that age that his parents told him he was an undocumented immigrant brought to the country without papers, and he would not be able to apply for a driver's license. So Augustine, the following years, you know, he graduated from high school. He started his own construction company. He met a U.S. citizen woman. He fell in love. They got married. They had children. He was on his way to school one day to pick up his two young boys. And in a school zone, we all know we're not supposed to speed, right? I've done it not once, but twice. And that was a hefty fine. But for Augustine, Speeding in a school zone could have meant him being pulled over, being found to be undocumented, and then deported. So for Augustine, he drove under the speed limit in a school zone. And just as he was about to get to the school parking lot, he saw a police officer uh, turn on his car lights and pull him over. So he pulled over, and the police officer said, do you know why I pulled you over? And Augustine had no idea. He said, no, I don't. He knew he wasn't speeding. And the police officer said, you were driving under the speed limit. And that's why I pulled you over today. They found out he was undocumented. They put him in an immigrant detention center where he was held for over half a year, separated from his wife who was pregnant uh, and his two young boys. And finally, he ended up losing his case and he was deported to Mexico. And that's where I met him in that shelter for men who had just been deported. And I remember as he was telling me the story and you could see in his eyes, the yearning to be reunited with his family. He had never even held his newborn baby daughter because his wife gave birth when he was in the detention center. And as he was telling me this terribly disheartening time of his life, I saw his face morph and all of a sudden I saw my father mm -hmm. and I remember thinking, if this was my father who had just been separated from his wife and his three children, is this how I would want him to be treated? Mm. And the answer was a resounding no. Yeah. So as a follower of Jesus, I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. And I love my neighbor as I love myself. And if I love myself enough to want good things for my family, then I have to want the same things for other people who are my neighbor. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Augustine was my neighbor. And that's when I couldn't 
look at this anymore as a political issue and things that I was hearing on the news or listening to on the radio, it was a human issue. It was Augustine. And now what if this was my family? And that's when it all changed for me. Mm. So you come back to Colorado and you decide I'm going to sit, you end up moving to Denver. I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait. So after you started Casa de Paz, I would imagine, and I don't want to overassume here, but I would imagine that you had to maybe detangle and dismantle some of your ideas about immigration and immigrants. What did that look like for you of, you just told this beautiful story about you're seeing this man who now you're saying, this could be my father. That changed everything for you. How then did that transfer to change things that you thought about policies and politics and the way that our country handles and thinks and devalues immigrants? It was a process that I was dismantling and I still am to this day. (laughs) It's a never ending journey. And I will say the key thing for me returning to Colorado Springs after that experience on the border was to have a group of trusted folks in my life who I could ask really difficult questions to without feeling ashamed or embarrassed. Growing up, I heard that immigrants came to the country and they took our jobs and they were selling the drugs and they were, you know, the typical stereotypes that Mm -hmm. we hear. And so even after that experience on the border, it was not an overnight shift for me. And it took a couple of years for me, and I call it a miracle because I am a very stubborn person. And for my mind to change overnight, like an experience that I had, I consider this to be miraculous. And I'm pretty sure most people who know me would agree. But I was still reconciling. How do you take a scripture that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself with give unto Caesar what is due to Caesar. How do you know, basically follow the law of the land versus follow the law of God. And there was one morning where I woke up and for some reason, it just became crystal clear to me. And I remember thinking, wow, last night I was hungry. So I found food and I ate it. I was thirsty. So I found something to drink and I drank it. I was tired. So I found a bed and a pillow and a roof and I slept. So I love myself like that. Mm. And if I want to say that I do my best to follow the words of Jesus, then I have to do that for my fellow neighbor. Mm. And that was not an overnight trip, you know, that getting to that point, it was over a year after my time on the border. And, and I'm grateful for that because I think that when we think we know it all. That's a very dangerous place to be in our lives. I very much agree. I can see how your faith has impacted this so greatly. And most people that listen to the show are people of faith. And so I love the way that you just laid it. You've said it several times, like love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that as Christ followers. In fact, if you've grown up in the church forever, that you've known that since you first went to Sunday school. But there is this disconnect. And I'll, I'll hear from people that I love and respect who will say things like, well, if people just came here the right way, then we wouldn't have this problem. What do you say about that? I think that's a great question to ask, honestly because I would rather hear questions like that than somebody be totally disengaged. I mean, that's even biblical, right? Are we cold or are we hot or are we lukewarm? Who gets spit out of the mouth? The lukewarm. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the question. And I think it's an opportunity for us to just look at one specific way that immigrants do come to the country legally. Asylum. 
Asking for asylum is an international right that is recognized worldwide, including in the United States. So an asylum seeker is someone who is fleeing danger in their home country, whether that's political oppression or religious persecution, whatever that reason is, someone has the right to come to the United States to arrive at the Mexico-U.S. border and to lawfully present themselves to a border patrol officer and say, hello, my name is Jose and I'm from wherever Jose is from or Maria or Jenny, whoever it is. And, you know, I am fleeing my country. Here's why it's too dangerous for me to return. I'm asking for asylum. They have that right. It is an internationally recognized law. And what our country, what the United States does at that point is arrests the immigrant, puts them in handcuffs, and then puts them into an immigrant detention center right there along the border where they are held until they are then transferred to another detention center that has more capacity to hold them while they are waiting for their immigration judge to hear their case. That process can take months or years at times, and immigrants held in detention for asylum hearings are held indefinitely. They're not serving a sentence for committing a crime because they have come the legal way. And this is how our country is set up to process the claims of asylum seekers. And not only are they held in these immigrant detention centers for sometimes years at a time, these are the majority run by for-profit prisons. So this is a moneymaker because when immigrants are held in these for-profit prisons, people are filling their pockets with not millions of dollars a year in profits, but billions of dollars a year in profits. And who is paying to detain them? We are, taxpayers. Our taxpayer dollars are being used to detain asylum seekers who have committed no crime. I think that surprises a lot of people. That surprised me when I first found out about it because that is a common argument, come the legal way. Okay, I did come the legal way and yet you still put me in prison. I mean, what do you what do you say to that? <laughs> so when I, when I hear that this year under this or under this administration, especially in 2020, but we know we have COVID and everything as well, but we are accepting way less asylum seekers than we have under past administrations. Do can those people even get to the country or are they stopped before they get here? Yes and no. Okay. So the current administration has made it very clear, I believe, from day one that immigrants are not welcome. And they have tried to push things past to show that message, especially along the border, by building the wall, turning away asylum seekers. Now, under the guise of COVID, they are even further clamping down and being more restrictive, um, saying, you know, it's for the security of the country. So essentially, even though the administration promised to build a wall, there's really not much proof of the wall that they've built that hasn't gone up the way that they've said it would go up. But they have, in a sense, turned Mexico into the wall because there is a policy that was put in place about a year ago called Remain in Mexico. 
And that basically says, if you get to the border of the U.S. and Mexico, absolutely, you can still ask for asylum, but you will wait in Mexico as your case is being heard. And so right now there are about 50,000 asylum seekers along the border just waiting for their day in court. And so if you look at it from a different perspective, that is a type of wall that is being built. And when folks are waiting, they are in very dangerous situations because they are oftentimes in the element. They have no shelter. They have no way to put food on their table. They're oftentimes victims of crimes, of sexual assault, of kidnapping, of forced into sex slavery or drug trafficking. And that is definitely not a situation I would want to be in. I mean, I wouldn't want any of my family, any of my friends to be in. And if you can imagine that someone would say, I am still going to stay here because Mm. where I came from was even more dangerous. That can be an enlightening moment, I hope. You know, it's also interesting for what you're talking about, that remain in Mexico. And and you guys remember last year, around this time, listeners, we had Tess Clark on here, episode number 260, if you want to go back and look at that. But that we talked a lot about this. And I um, went on a trip with her down to El Paso and over the border. And what I learned there when I was on that trip was that not only are they, you know, having to wait in this city for months on the border for their whenever they might get a court date, the cities that they're waiting in are already vulnerable cities. And so like you said, there is so much disaster awaiting them around every corner. They can't find a job. They've left their family. Drug cartels are just rapid looking for people who are in vulnerable situations. And yet they don't know how long they're going to sit there. And like you said, the fact that they're willing to say, okay, I'm willing to stay here means that you are left something really, really difficult. I remember having a conversation with a man across the border and hearing a story of leaving complete violence. And he left his wife and his kids to try to get a better life for them. And I remember sitting there thinking, like you had that moment where this kid commanded dad. I remember thinking, you know, I, I saw someone say something the other day and they said, all of you that say you would, you know, you would kill for your kids or you walk through fire for your kids or you would do anything for your kids. And yet you look at a mom or dad who would make a trek from who knows how far to do something better for your kids. And then you say they're not good parents. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I would do the same thing for my kids. I would do that and more. I would do the same thing. And so it was that moment. It was that proximity moment for me of going, wow, everything's not as I see that it is. You know, you mentioned the detention center and bringing the asylum seekers in and they may spend months, if not years in there. I know something you talk about in your book is this idea that jailing undocumented people is new in our country. When did that happen? What does that look like? What did it used to look like? What is that happening right now? We have not always operated under a system where undocumented immigrants are put into these for-profit prisons. In the 80s, it really started to ramp up where we were seeing more and more folks being detained. And especially once the for-profit prisons started having contracts with Immigration and Customs Enforcement with ICE, you can see explosive growth simply because of the fact that now this is a moneymaker. Hey, side note, you know what I just thought about? I wonder if that coincides with like our prison system in America exploding um, in the 80s 
probably part of the same reason. It is absolutely interconnected. And there's a really great a documentary on Netflix called 13. Oh, yes. I don't know. If, that's yeah, I've seen it. And that's what made me think of it. Of like, yep. Imprisoning people for things that you should not be in prison for. But it's all about money. Yes, absolutely. And I want to highlight that this is not the only option. There are what are called alternatives to detention, such as having an ankle monitor and having daily or weekly check-ins with your ICE officer having other ways for ICE to have the ability to track where you are to make sure you're doing what you are supposed to be doing, showing up to your ICE check-ins and all of those kinds of things. The problem with alternatives to detention is not that folks don't do what they're supposed to do because study after study after study show that well into the high 90% of folks who are in these alternative to detention programs actually show up for their court appearances. So that's not the problem. The problem is that these programs cost pennies to the dollar. So people will not make as much money if people are only wearing an ankle monitor versus being put into a detention center. So I think if we can get to the point where we can cut out the for-profit prison aspect of this, then we're going to be in a much better place to address the way that we treat, especially, I mean, I know we're now talking specifically asylum seekers, Mm -hmm. right? There is absolutely no reason that someone needs to be held in a detention center. And you were mentioning a year ago that you had someone on your podcast, I'm and, and you went down to the border, which is phenomenal. In the Under the zero tolerance policy last summer, where the administration was forcibly removing parents from their children, and then a couple months later, there was a huge outcry by everyone, the church, unchurched, everyone is saying, this is not okay. And we actually, as a government, came out later and said, this classified torture. This was a form of torture to take babies and take them away from their parents and then put three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds in detention centers and have their parents being held in completely separate detention centers. And then when we were ordered by a judge to reunite them, they had no way to track where the children were, where the parents were, and how to put them together again. That's torture, but it's happening again. And my parents actually lived in Germany for several years. My dad got a job there, so they relocated. And I was able to go to Germany multiple times. And every single time we went to Germany, I would go to a Holocaust memorial or a Holocaust museum. Both sides of my family actually had family members who were either killed in the Holocaust or put into concentration camps. So this is a very real thing in my life. And we say never again, right? Never again will we watch people be treated in such a terrible manner. But under the zero tolerance policy one year ago, we are in the same space Mm -hmm. right now where under COVID, a judge ordered ICE to release all of the children who were in these detention centers and being held with their parents, but they did not order that the parents also be released with their children. So we're back in zero tolerance policy part two, because we're releasing, the judge has ordered these detention centers to release the children, but not with their parents. So where are they being released to? Uh, foster care? They Most of the folks in detention have family yes. or friends uh-huh. or sponsors already in the United right. States. And for the select few that do not, yes, they will be placed into foster care. Kylie, it's so much to wrap your mind around, Sarah, and this is your 
everyday life. And I'm so thankful for you. And I want to get to your organization in just a second, but I have one more question for you. There's no doubt someone listening and they hear everything you're saying and they're like, I can't even believe this. This is not okay. This is not right but I don't know what to do or what that means. And surely I trust our government. Surely there's a reason there must be a loophole. We're maybe missing something because this does not sound okay. What is your encouragement to them, advice to them? What do you say to that person? I would say, I know how you feel. (laughs) I've been there, done that. I heard stories. I am outraged. I am hearing stories. And this is, you know, I started Casa de Paz eight years ago. The trip to the border was 10 years ago. So I am grateful that you are feeling outraged. And and I think that that anger can be used for good. There are a lot of resources on the internet for you to begin your journey in learning more about this. And so if you are evangelical or you are Methodist or you are Lutheran, whatever your background is or not one of those and you just want to learn. I'm just, I know that most folks listening today may be part of a faith community. So literally just Google Hmm. immigration, evangelical response or immigration, United Methodist view, whatever it is. These resources are chock full of scripture references, of study guides, of resources to recommend. Also, if you go to our website, casadepazcolorado.org, and if you, whether or not you read my book or not, we have a list of resources that you can access to learn more, to advocate and use your voice, to release families together, to protect asylum seekers. But there is really at this point, no excuse for you to say I'm outraged, uh, but I'm not going to do anything because I don't know what to do. (laughs) I mean, it is pretty simple to spend five minutes and figure out a next step. I love it. And we will put resources in this show notes as well. And uh, two Instagram pages that I love are Women of Welcome and We Welcome Refugees. Women of Welcome is committed to helping to educate Christian women on how we have Christ-like welcomeness within our communities. And so they're doing that well. And we will link to your page as well, Sarah, to show everything. Okay, let's talk about your house that you started 10 years ago. I know you went to the border. Uh, you met your friend and you thought, oh my gosh, this could be my family. And your life just started changing. You started dismantling. You started learning. That's all great. How did that lead you to say, here's how I'm going to do my part is I'm going to welcome immigrants into my home. (laughs) Yeah, another accident. (laughs) (laughs) So I move up to Denver because there's the detention center. I knew that there was going to be some correlation between immigrant detention and families as far as my calling. And so in front of the immigrant detention center, there's a prayer vigil every month, a group of folks gather together to pray and hold space for families that are separated by detention. So I show up to this vigil, somebody says the name El Refugio. And I thought, I don't know that name. It means the refuge. And so I asked them, what is El Refugio? And they said, oh, it's a hospitality home in Georgia. It's about a mile away from the immigrant detention center. And they open up their home to host out-of-town families who are driving in to visit their loved one who's detained, kind of like the Ronald McDonald home, Mm -hmm. but for families separated by detention. And I knew right away that is what I want to do. For the first reason, one, it was all about reuniting a family, even if they only were driving in to see them, not to pick them up because they were being released, but just to see them. I knew this is powerful. I want to do this. And then the second thing I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so easy. (laughs) 
All you have to do is get a house and let people stay with you. And really at the end of the day, it is not difficult. It is very simple. It is opening up a home. It is opening up the door. It is basic stuff, food, shelter, friendship. And so I started looking for homes thinking, oh, this is perfect. This is what I'm going to do. And actually went down to El Rujo to see how they do what they do. And I learned so much. And when I was down there, this feeling that I had in the actual home, we were hosting a family who had driven in from Texas to visit their dad. It was this peace that even in the midst mm-hmm. of this traumatic experience of this mother and her four kids being separated from their father for over a year, it was peace that they were in a place that they knew that they were welcomed in, that they belonged and that they mattered. So when I came back, I was like, okay, I'm going to call it Casa de Paz, House of Peace. Started looking for houses. Everything was way over my price range. I was working part-time at that time and I just knew I couldn't afford this. So then I went right across the street from the detention center. There were these old apartment buildings. So I walk in and I ask Kim, the leasing manager, how much is the rent? It was very affordable. I could afford it. Then I started asking, okay, does that include trash and internet? You just basic stuff. And then she said, well, how many people will be staying in the apartment? And I had this moment where I thought, if I try to hide it, eventually it's going to come out. Like nobody has people coming in and out every day. Like no one's that popular. (laughs) And so I just told her, this is what I want to do. I seriously thought she was going to say no. For sure. I would think she would say no too. Like, no, this is not a hotel. Right, exactly. So I'm seriously on the edge of my seat about to get up and walk out because I know that's what she's going to say. Like, you're crazy. Goodbye. (laughs) Call security, get her out. But that's not what happened. She said, okay. And what can I do to help? And I said, what do you mean? What can you do to help? Like, cause now this is real. Like, oh my gosh, if I found a place, that means I'm actually going to have to do this. And she said, you know what, Sarah, many years ago, I was dating a man. He was undocumented. He was detained by ICE and put into a detention center eight hours away from where we lived. Mm. So every weekend I was driving to visit him And that was expensive. I had to pay for gas. I had to pay for a hotel. I had to pay for food. And I ran out of money. But if I had had a place like this to stay, Mm. maybe I would have stayed in contact with Mm. him and and I wouldn't have had to say goodbye forever. And so that's how it all began. And a crazy story, but a fun story to look back on and tell for sure. So did you live in the house and you were, or was this a house just for people to stay in? No, I lived there. You know, I was part-time, you know, Uh with my work and I could afford a one-bedroom apartment. Uh (laughs) I could not afford a two-bedroom apartment. So I lived at the Casa de Paz. In the very beginning years, we were in a one-bedroom apartment for about four years until we saved up enough money to be able to move into an actual home. And then we have now a house uh, with guest bedrooms and then bedrooms for us to live in who live there as well. Do you live there now? Right now, I do not. Unfortunately, a year ago, my brother was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Okay. And he lived at that time about an hour away from where the Casa was. So I moved out and I'm right in the middle of where the Casa is. So the Casa, and then I'm in the middle, and then my brother. So, so you can, I can do spend both. More time yeah. With him. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay. So yeah. I, I don't want to sound ignorant here, Sarah. So please help me out. What you're telling me is that for four years, you lived in a one bedroom apartment. And you opened up your doors to strangers and said, I don't sleep on the couch. I mean, here's the fridge. Here's what, what did that look like? 
Yep, that's what happened basically. <laughs> so I have this idea, I get this apartment and then I just wait. I'm like waiting for that first family to drive in. And it took a couple months. Wait, and what honestly, do you mean first family to drive in? Like you were like passing out brochures or how'd they know about you? Yep, I was passing out brochures. I was networking with other nonprofit organizations in Denver that worked alongside immigrants in the immigrant community. And so finally one day, like two months later after I was like, opening up and ready to go, I get a referral from Piper, who works at the American Friends Service Committee. And there are a bunch of Quakers in town that are doing great stuff. And she said, hey, I just spoke with a family who's driving in from Oklahoma. It's a mom and her four kids. They're here to visit their father who's been detained. Uh, They don't have money for a hotel. They have no money for food. They barely had enough money to put gas in their car to come visit their dad. This thing, that this Casa de Paz thing, like, are you still doing it? I was like, of course I'm still doing it. <laughs> I haven't even had one family yet. Of course I'm still doing it. And she said, can I give them your number? And I said, absolutely. So the mom called me. I gave her directions. She arrived and they walk in and I'll never forget this. You know, they're tired and weary from a long journey and four kids in a car for that long. Oh, shoot. I bow down to that. (laughs) Um, And they unload all their stuff. I told them, hey, take the bedroom. There's my bed. I only had one bed. (laughs) So I'm like, take the bed. I'll sleep on the couch. We'll figure this out. And then we started making dinner together and we were having soup. And it wasn't anything fancy. I mean, it was a canned soup that I opened up and heated up on the stove. And the kids scarfed it down and were asking for seconds like within minutes of eating their first bowl. And I was thinking, this is like not even tasty to me. It's very bland and doesn't taste good. Why do they like it so much? But I wasn't going to ask. So I gave them another bowl of soup. The kids went to bed. And later on that night, the mother was telling me that when her husband was detained, he was the main Mm -hmm. income provider for the family. So they ended up being evicted from their home because they couldn't afford their payment. And they were living in an abandoned home on the outskirts of town. And they had no running water. They had no electricity. And so when they ate soup in their home, it was literally eating it out of a can. Mm. It was not warm. It was cold. And so when they had this opportunity to just have a, a bowl of soup that was warmed up, it tasted so good to them. And I remember thinking, wow, like all I did was open up my door, heat up a bowl of soup, and that mattered. Mm. It was important. Maybe this was a good decision, you know? Mm. And that's what we were doing for the next four, four and a half years is having families come and stay and then they'd leave. And then another family would come and stay for a few days and then they'd leave. But then a very interesting thing happened. One day out of the blue, I get a call from an officer at the detention center, a guard at the detention center. And it was in the middle of a blizzard. It was very cold outside. And I hate the cold growing up. Because you're a Texas Texas girl, right? I know. Like anything under 70, (laughs) I'm like, where is my parka and my like fur boots? (laughs) Fake fur boots. Um, So the guard, he calls me and he said, hey, I know that you've been having family stay at your house uh, because, you know, I lived right across the street. I was familiar with the guards and and they knew who I was by this point. He said, there's a young woman who just won her asylum case and she's being released today. Her family lives in a completely different state. She has no money. She has no cell phone. She has no way to get to the bus station. What do you think about coming and picking her up and letting her stay at your house? And 
you know, I couldn't make an excuse. What was I going to say? Like traffic was too bad. Mm-hmm. Like I'm looking at the detention center. It's a five minute walk. So I said, sure. And I walked over, didn't know what I was doing, but I walked into the lobby and I, I found her, I introduced myself. And, and the only way that I could really explain it was, you know, I told her it's cold outside. I have a coat in my house for you. Do you want it? Like my Spanish was very rusty and though I only could get out a few words and she said, yes, you know, she literally had no other option mm. because when you're released from the detention center, you can't say, oh, wait a minute. It's in the middle of a blizzard. Can I stay for a couple more days? Mm. You know, so she had no other choice. She had to leave. And so she, we walk over to the apartment and I found a coat for her And we called her family and started making arrangements for them to get her a bus ticket. And then that night, I don't remember what we had. Maybe we had soup, (laughs) but she got a bus ticket. Her family purchased the bus ticket. And then the following day, I drove down to the Greyhound bus station. You know, we packed a bag of snacks for her, gave her a pillow, and she was on her way. And I'll never forget, as we were walking out of the apartment, out of the casa, and headed to the bus station, she saw the United States flag flowing, you know, in blowing in the wind. And it was right above the balcony of the apartment entrance. And she stopped and she stared and she just gasped. And she was just so in awe that she had made it to the United States. She was safe. She could feel comfortable again and not continually worried about being attacked uh, from the situation that she was fleeing from. And she said, Uh, do you mind taking a picture of me and under the flag? And I said, of course, you know, so we we did a little photo Mm -hmm. shoot and it was cute because the coat that I had given her was really big. She was very petite. I am not petite. (laughs) And so she wanted to take off the coat so that she looked cute Uh in the pictures and the sweater that I had given her. (laughs) This is funny. I haven't thought about this in a while. The sweater that I gave her was the smallest sweater that I had. And it was my date night sweater. I was, you know, I'm still single, but I was single back then. And so it was like the sweater that I wore when I wanted to look cute on a date. Uh So I gave it to her and and it was, you know, it was maroon and with lace on it. And I still have the picture never Mm. in a million years thinking a few years later, we would have a full blown post-release support program for folks like Floor who were being released from detention. And as of Last week, we have hosted 3,111 immigrants from 77 countries. That's over two-thirds of the world's countries. It's amazing. All have passed under Casa de Positive. That's amazing. And so now it seems as though you're housing people coming to visit families and people when they get out before they get where they need to go. Yes. So we have those two programs in addition to our visitation program. So we also, you know, when Jesus says, when you visited me in prison, I mean, maybe there's room for interpretation, but then also maybe there's not. (laughs) So we visit people who are in prison as well. And we are not legal advice. We're not social workers. We're simply there as a presence offering our time and our ability to uh, just be with them in the visitation. I love what you guys are doing so much. I mean, I have to come see this place next time I'm in Denver. I would love to come by for real. So not everyone listening lives in Denver. Are there ways people can partner with you guys to help what your organization, what you're doing for Casa de Paz? Absolutely. If you go to our website, casadepazcolorado.org, 
there's a little link there where you can sign up to volunteer and you can volunteer remotely. We have a pen pal program. So you can write folks who are in detention. Yeah. You can send uh, welcome to the USA cards. When people are released from the detention center, we give them a card that says, welcome. We're glad you're here. You belong here. You know, right now in the middle of this pandemic, if you know how to make Face mask. mask, yeah. Make a mask yeah. and send it over. And there's a lot of opportunities. A couple things too that I'll mention. If you live in a city that already has a program like this, there's an easy way to find out. I can connect you to, to the list of other hospitality homes oh, across the great. country. Or if you live next to a detention center or near a detention center and are interested in starting a hospitality home or a visitation program or a pen pal program. I can let you know what not to do because I've probably done it all. And I'd be very happy to guide you along the way. Oh, well, I really do love what you guys are doing. And you have a book that came out, The House That Love Built. And it actually released this summer, right in the middle of global pandemic. And Sarah, can I tell you something funny? I thought this was you on the cover until like a week ago. (laughs) So like, I just actually, I see the resemblance. Well, No, I'd never seen you before. No. So no, that's what I'm saying. I've never seen you before. So the whole time I'm like prepping and reading. Well, before probably I started reading it, but then I looked you up online and I was like, oh, that's not you. That's not you at all. Did you get a copy without my picture on the back? Yeah, it's a, it's an advanced advanced reader copy. So yeah, there's no picture of you on here. I always end asking people, what are you loving? What are you reading? What do you got for us today? So the book that is on my bedside table is called The Empty Chair, Finding Hope and Joy. And it's wisdom from a rabbi. Mm. And it's just these little quotes. I mean, here's one. The light of the infinite one is without form and only takes shape for good or bad in the recipient. Therefore, it is up to us. We have to do our best to shape God's light into blessing, not curse. I didn't pre-pick that one. I just opened it there up. It is. It's just these tiny yeah. little meditations. Yeah, I love that's it. What I'm I love it. What are you loving these days? You got to text your girlfriends to tell them about. The most recent episode of 90 Day Fiance. Do you love that show? I love that show. I've watched every season, every iteration. Shows like that stress me out. Oh, it totally stresses me out, but I apparently thrive (laughs) on drama. So that's why I love it so much. (laughs) That's hilarious. Do they always end up getting married? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Absolutely not. That takes away some of the stress, actually, that, you know, that they don't. Yeah. Yeah, mm. no, they don't. Mm. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for spending your time with us. And you guys, if you want to hear more about Sarah's story, check out her book, The House That Love Built, Why I Opened My Door to Immigrants and How We Found Hope Beyond a Broken System. Thank you for educating us too on some things. I really appreciate that. And if you guys want to hear more, I know I said this, but Tess Clark has a great interview last year on the Happy Hour episode number 260 that would also spark your interest if you enjoyed this show. Sarah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Guys, I enjoyed this conversation with Sarah. And if you want to learn more about the things we were talking about, her organization, you should really check out her book. You know, the dilemma of undocumented people continues to hover over America, and it raises urgent questions for every Christian, such as, what is our responsibility to the stranger in our midst? What does God's kingdom look like in the global political reality of immigration? And here's the big one. What difference truly can one person make? Sarah engages these questions and ultimately her own journey and illuminates how hope can be restored through simple yet radical acts of love. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell 
and the happy hour is produced and organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Don't forget to text UBU to 33777. That's UBU, no spaces, all one word, 33777. I mean, what do you have to lose? Just send us a text, people, and we'll let you know how you can pre-order the book. Guys, enjoy your week. Share the show with a friend. Have a happy hour with a friend. Join me back here on Friday for a happy hour with Lecrae.